0: Alright, there we go. Hi everybody, it is, let's see if this is uh, translating yet, I believe it is. Hi everybody, it is the 11th of uh, August 2022 and it is time for episode uh, 128, I think, of my live chat, something like that. How are you doing? I hope you're doing well, I appreciate everyone tuning in today. Uh, Let's see, sort of standard disclaimer, you can see right here. Thumbs up on the video if you'd be so kind. Please hit subscribe. Um, Try to get some content out the door these days a little bit differently. Playing with some shorts. YouTube shorts. There seems to be some money in those gold. Well, not money, but there seems to be some subscriber growth in those gold mines. So we're trying to get more of those out of the way. Um, Yeah, if you want to reach me via email. And by the way, I'm still behind on emails, but um, I have another announcement here in just a second, which will... Help explain what I can do to get that fixed. Uh, You can email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. As a heads up on programming, this is actually... um, There's not going to be a live chat next week because I will be on vacation. So it would actually be two weeks before I do this again. So for those who tuned in today, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, I know it's it's, it's, it's both simultaneously a busy week in MMA and then not, right? Because the events are... uh, They're not like... A-level events for, well, I guess it's kind of an A-level-ish event for PFL, but did you guys see that two other semifinalists can't make it into uh, Cardiff or couldn't make it into Wales, excuse me? And so as a consequence, um, they're going to have two substitutes in the semis. Like, it's just a goddamn nightmare over there for that organization at this time. So we can get to any of those kinds of things. PFL, Bellator, uh, Elaine McFarlane missed weight. I think she was supposed to make 126. She made 129 wow that is shocking and of course there's ufc this weekend as well so thumbs up on the video hit subscribe thank you for joining me again there's no live chat next week but there'll be one the week after that and um yeah that's it all right without further ado let's get this party started shall we let's see and we're back all right let me turn this off so as you guys know I put up a thread usually the day before. You guys fill it up. I put on the community tab here at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. Again, we go to the community tab. I fill up, put up a picture. You guys fill up the questions, and then we go from there. I'll go for about an hour. If you are so inclined, let's see. Uh, if you are so inclined, you can um, leave a donation. You're certainly under no obligation to do so. This can be as free as uh, I, I do my best to make it. But if you would like to leave one, that'd be great. I have one month left on rent in the, uh, basically at this point, unused studio. Um, learning lesson there. Big, a big learning lesson there. Not quite the most expensive one, but not a great one either. So, what can you do? Life is full of mistakes. You just got to navigate them as best you can. All right. With that, oh, point of order. So last week, somebody asked me what was the reason why you can have these relatively small geographic locations that seem to just produce enormous talent at a world level, despite, again, sort of population size and geographic constraints. And it's not just true. The question was about, like, Dagestani guys, like, why are they so good in MMA? Uh, But, you know, you could apply it to a lot of different circumstances. You could apply it to the All Blacks rugby team out of New Zealand, right? A very small nation, relatively speaking, and yet they are world-level powerhouses, uh, oftentimes the best team in the world. Um, my buddy, Othello, of course you guys know him, he posted the clip of me talking about that, and my answer was basically like when you get all of these cultural forces kind of funneling this together, which creates you know apparatus and infrastructure for talent recruitment and development, when it's the prized possession, it becomes something that people start very early on, there's just all of these recruiting, developing, nurturing uh, systems that get put in place as a consequence, but there was a much better answer that my guy Chad Wesley Smith gave, and I wanted to read it here because it's just way better than anything I offered. Do you guys know who Chad Wesley Smith is? I, he used to be with Juggernaut uh, Fitness. I don't know if he still is, but Chad Wesley Smith was a world-level power lifter for a long time, and we're talking like squats and, and deadlifts, well, of excess of eight 900 pounds. And was also I think he was more than that. He was a track and field athlete in college, and like a lot of other stuff. He owns his own businesses now, but he had a response on my Instagram. I got it right here that I wanted to read to you. So if he, if if Chad Wesley Smith was asked a question, you by the way, you can see all of his stuff on YouTube. He's got a whole, a whole just menagerie of content related to um, any kind of uh, more so powerlifting stuff, but like you know resistance training and whatnot. In any event, here's what he writes: It's like, what's the answer for why like all these Dagestani guys are so good?" He writes, "quote, I think it's a mix of factors, some peripheral effects of Soviet sports school slash sports science understanding of training design, general fitness preparation and technical development. Some of that is, uh, some is that fighting is a hard sport for hard people, and Dagestan culture uh, culturally lends itself to that." Sorry, I can't really read this distance. Also, fighting doesn't lend itself to a particular extreme physical asset like height, so while their population is small, most of their men will fall within the range of potential fighter size, especially true in a weight class sport. Finally, grappling lends itself to high training volumes and because it is so varied in nature, it makes it tough to specialize too early, so growing up wrestling slash fighting a lot is very helpful while in some sports that could limit long term development. Finally. Because it's such a part of the culture, you get the past champions becoming coaches and interacting with young athletes earlier in their career. So they start off with good coaching, similar to Finland in the javelin. Now, I don't know how good the Finnish are at the javelin, but I'm going to guess, as this gentleman has a background in track and field, that the Finnish are actually pretty good at it. That's a much better answer than what I gave you. So I was hoping to read that here to give you some perspective, and I hope that helps along the way. Okay, with that out of the way, Let's kick this off here with your questions from this thread. First, um, Look, how does Volkanovski's game transfer to 155? Do you see him having trouble against larger grapplers like Charles and Islam, especially considering his leg kick heavy game plan? For example, Ortega countering Volk's leg kick and catching a guillotine. Certainly seems possible. I, I tend to wonder about that. I... I I think he is going to have to negotiate distance a little bit more. I, I would have to see exactly how much of a gap there is between um, the leg and arm reach, between featherweights and lightweights. I don't know how readily accessible that information is, but seems to be relevant. Obviously, he's going to carry with him a semi-speed advantage. I don't think he'd be physically giving up a lot in terms of what his actual capacity for work is, Um and I don't think he'd be giving up a whole lot with cardio considerations, but I would wonder how he would take damage. I would wonder how. Um, what's your question exactly? Have a leg kick heavy game plan, um, right? And the other part too is like I don't think Volkanovski in any way has a bad chin, but I wouldn't say he's got like Chito Vera level durability right he's been dropped by chad mendez he's been dropped by ortega he got dropped by max i think he got dropped by somebody else too along the way he's been dropped several times now they couldn't really do anything with it in the end although ortega got pretty close right pretty close but uh, i do wonder how that power resistance in terms of how he can take a shot at 155 with the with the higher level of power that they can exert how all of that might play. There's there's major questions there. There's major questions there. But I do think that his style of fighting about being able to confuse people, and again, in his words, scrambling their brains, that translates up a weight class as well. And again, I do think he physically can match the strength of most of those 155ers, probably not all of them, but many many of them. And uh, I think he'll have somewhat of a speed advantage. So all of those factors make it interesting, but you're right, there are some, again, At 155, I think there are some potential durability questions. Um, There are distance questions and how he'll navigate it. Um, And really what kind of accumulative effect those leg kicks can have against bigger people, right? They can be somewhat of a deterring factor and a confusing factor at 145. Does it mean the exact same thing at 155? There's really no way to know. That's why you got to have him fight. But those would be the things I'd be paying the most attention to. Uh, Luke, in regards to UFC 278, I'm troubled by Kamaru Usman's change in style. That's interesting. Could Kamaru Usman's new style of striking be detrimental against Leon Edwards? And if you agree with my argument, is an overcorrection of his past flaws? I would not call it an overcorrection of his past flaws at all. He writes, Usman is naturally a fantastic, fantastic wrestle boxer under Whitman's training. He has significantly improved his jabs and straight punches from both stances. That's valuable no matter what. I would also say his footwork is cleaner. Um, However, he's become less of a pressure-heavy and forward-moving fighter and now appears to be counter-striking off of the back foot. This happened to work against Burns due to the stylistic weaknesses. Burns also was putting heavy pressure, but resulted in an arguably worse performance against Colby Covington. He didn't fight Colby's pressure nearly as well in the rematch as he did the first time. That's interesting. I could see Usman beating Leon if he incorporates the new skills with his natural wrestle-boxer style. Yes, Agreed. However, this new style it could be horrible against Leon Edwards, who's a much more complete striker and has intelligent distance management and striking defense. Yeah, if you guys haven't gone back and watched the first fight, you really should. It's a bit of a time capsule fight because Edwards is, I mean, this is what, seven years ago they fought? 2015? Yeah. Um, we rewatched it for Morning Combat. There's going to be a video coming out where BC and I go through it again. I had rewatched it even prior to that uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, something like that. When you watch the contest, actually Edwards kind of lands much more cleanly on Kamaru early on, but the thing that you notice about Kamaru is the early style of fighting that he developed. He just kind of walked through all of it. He wasn't deterred by the physical physicality of any of the strikes of Edwards. He wasn't deterred by his defense. He and by the way, like the first 3 attempts that Kamaru makes in the first round in the in for a takedown, he whiffs on 2 of them. Like and like after a steady amount of pressure, too, like he could not get it. Now, the story of that fight, though, is because he just kind of bit down and walked through whatever Edwards was giving to him, the takedowns came a little bit easier in the second round, and by the third round, he had him in leg drag, and I think taking his back for some time as well. It got, by the third round, third round was a clear round for Kamaru Usman, and I think if you look at the scores... I think one was 30-27, and there were like two 29, 28 so That first round, Edwards arguably won, probably. Yeah, I, would, I actually think he won the first round, um, even though there was a little bit more wrestling that was done by Kamaru in the end. Now, Kamaru did get him down in total six takedowns, over 100 strikes, over 10 minutes of control time, although a lot of that was against the fence. But your key insight is right here about that style. He had a kind of raw style style. But however raw it was, he already had obviously very good wrestling, phenomenal physicality, phenomenal um, cardiovascular conditioning, and that powered everything in this kind of overbearing way where what Edwards ended up finding was that this was the thing in that fight, dude, like look at them, go back and watch the fight. I think it's on YouTube if you don't have Fight Pass. Go back and look at the fight. Look at Edwards' face when the fight is over. He barely had a mark on him. Now, again, he got beat up a little bit in that third round. There, again, th- very clear third round for Kamaru Usman. But in the totality of 15 minutes, it wasn't like he got his ass kicked. Like, not at all. And again, in fact, some like I would say the much better stand-up between them came from... Edwards. Now, Kamaru was sneaky. He had elbows in the clinch in certain moments where he was, like, you know, uh, elbowing off the break. Some of those landed. Those were pretty nice. Like, those could have cut in a different circumstance, right? Um, I mean, it wasn't like Kamaru had nothing for him on the feet, but, like, definitely Edwards was the better of the two. And what you just noticed, though, like, the reason that fight got away from Edwards was because he just couldn't find a way to keep Kamaru off of him. His jab didn't really deter him. As good as his footwork was, Kamaru just kind of ran him down or would shoot for a single and then take the single and then run him back to the fence, you know? Like, he's not really trying to get a single right there. He just wants to grab the single as a way to initiate some kind of uh, wrestling sequence along the fence. To your point, where is that Kamaru? Does he still really exist? You You... You haven't necessarily seen that more recently. Uh, You got maybe a little bit of a taste of that in the first Masvidal fight, but that was kind of a weird fight. So I would generally agree with you for the most part. Now I do think that the overall improvement in his striking is not an overall trade-off. There might be certain trade-offs with respect to how he employs it relative to what he used to do. Fair. But I still think it's a net gain. Overall, it's going to win him more fights than it's going to lose him. However, I would agree with you. I would agree that the physicality of Kamaru to really— I mean, people are kind of looking past this fight because the first one is not remarkable, right? Because, I mean, how many people remember it? How many people were there live? It was on the Dos Anjos Cowboy 2 card in uh, Orlando back in 2015. It was a Fox card, I believe. Um, You know, how many people were really paying attention to Kamaru at the time? It was only his second fight, I think, in all the UFC. He had won the fight against Hyder Hassan to win the ultimate fighter than the Black Zillion season. And then here he found himself. So um, so I, I would just say that like, I think I, I would not characterize um, that his new striking style is overall a net negative. I think it's a net gain. But I would agree that while going back to that first fight is somewhat of a time capsule, if you just think about Usman and he still has that physicality and he still has great wrestling, and then of course he can complement it by not getting as beat up on the feet, but what would make you believe that over the course of now five rounds, not three, that Usman, with a pressure-heavy game, somewhat a little bit more amended for, um, you know, again, better striking entries and whatever else, why that wouldn't be a game plan by, by contrast, where if he was a little bit more reserved and playing a, more of a stand-up game with Edwards, yeah, I could see that costing him for sure. For sure, I can see that costume. This fight's kind of interesting, to be honest with you, man. I, I keep telling people, and, and it's a lesson that I, the only reason I bring it up is because I've learned it the hard way a million times. It is everybody thinks it's that one guy coming up that's going to dethrone the champ, and yes, of course that happens. There can be these major changes of power, but a lot of times the one who gets tripped up, or the guy who trips them up, is the one that, and again, people from the UK might not like this characterization, but it's like the one that people didn't necessarily see coming. Let me look at the odds on this one. How does Best Fight Odds have it? Great place to get some MMA odds. What do they have for UFC 278? So they have it currently as it stands today. They have Usman as a considerable favorite. About minus 340 to Edwards as plus 280 to plus 270. That's a huge favorite. I don't know if I agree that the fight's that close. I think it could be that close depending on what style Um, Usman implements of course right. if he gets back to again a smarter version of the first fight yes I don't know what physically uh, 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 an improved version of the first fight from Kumaru and again with better entries and and a little bit less susceptibility to bad strikes on the feet why that guy can't beat really anyone at welterweight quite frankly I mean I guess we'll see what happens with Shamaya but certainly Edwards in this case but if there is at all an alteration with aggression if there's at all an alteration with sort of mindset about how a fight should be navigated yeah yeah dude edwards was edwards won the first round dude like he was on two of the three judges scorecards he won it if you get back to something like that that's not a great fight necessarily for camoro it's not a great way to fight i should say so while i would say i'm to be very clear i'm picking camoro to win yeah, I kind of like this fight. I kind of like how intriguing it is. And, of course, as you're the champion, you owe it to the division to to defend a title and keep it in, in motion. But um, it's a great question overall. Do you think it's fair that Sean got the shot over uh, Peter, F., Piotr, I guess you mean, after his no contest? With little to no punishment for eye pokes, groin shots, do you think it incentivizes fighters to fight in a way to increase the chances of eye pokes? I don't think it's the eye poke issue. I just think he's really popular and they wanted to act on it. <laughs> I don't think it's much more complicated than that, to be honest with you. Um, is it fair? Fuck no. The matchmaker model isn't fair. But the matchmaker model, as you can see with the PFL's woes, is probably the best model that we have. Right? It's like, uh, is it the Churchill quote about democracy? It's the worst form of government except for all the other ones. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. It's not identical to what it is. But um, it's the, the matchmaker model is a terrible model, except the other ones are far worse. So... Do I think it's fair? No, What the question, of course, with the model is, what does fair have to do with anything? What's your take on fighters having a manager? It seems like it would behoove a fighter to partner with top management like Dominance or Paradigm, yet we have recently heard Dom Cruz question why anyone would do so, and Sugar Sean dropped his management entirely. Yeah. I really think it depends on the fighter, it depends on the organization, it depends on a lot of factors. John Nash has been pretty clear that if you just look at the numbers and what fighters get paid and how fighting pay is handed out, you don't walk away from what the actual documents are coming to a very strong conclusion that managers have played a strong role in upping it. And in fact, there is some evidence to indicate that certain managers or certain managerial experiences Found that they had a cozier relationship with the organization than vice versa, and so maybe that inhibited pay, maybe it didn't, but it certainly didn't boost pay, right? And so he has made that argument, and I think there's probably a fair amount of a fair amount of uh, importance to that. The best I can say is that I do think that when you get a fighter, when you get a manager, and again, I don't have good relationships with a lot of, them. I don't have relationships with a whole like there's a lot of ones you all see on TV. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I've ever talked to in my life, and I've been in this business either as long or longer than them. I don't really I have a I have a good relationship uh, with a few managers. I have a communicative relationship with others. It's about it. So I I hardly have, you know. I've not heard their best pitch for what they do. They often make their claim that what they do is um, overall raise, fight, or pay. And again, John Nash has argued that. Um, you know, like maybe perhaps that's true, but in reading the documents from the, again, the fighter lawsuit, you would not walk away with that impression first things first. You would not walk away like, wow, would not for these managers, the, the, the fighter pay wouldn't be as good. However, what I can say is I have seen uh, managers serve a pretty valuable role. One, if they do have a good relationship with the organization, not just UFC, but Bellator or whoever, um, that can affect matchmaking down the road. Um, that's one. The other one, I think the most important one I would say is it's less about what they do for your pocketbook, although there are some that are good at procuring sponsors. That's a big one, actually. If you can get a managerial company that doesn't just like, hey, I'm going to negotiate your contract. If all your manager is doing, if, listen, if you're unranked or inside the top 11 or so, like 11 to 15 is what I mean, and all your manager is really doing is negotiating with the UFC, yeah, there's probably a question about what value is actually there. Um The best I can say I've seen from them is they tend to be uh, helpful guides. So one thing they might do, of course, is one, they might get you sponsors outside the uh, octagon or they can navigate that as well. Um, There can be that. If you're an elite fighter and having a manager who is a gifted negotiator, I think uh, that can make a difference, Um, especially in terms of like perhaps small details. Travel, accommodations, where a fight takes place. Again, if they have a good relationship with their organization, matchmaking favors. There are some things that benefit you down the road. But in general, like the managers that I have the best relationship with, what I would say is the role that I have seen them serve very valuably is they provide career guidance to uncertain fighters. Young men often, of course there's young women as well, but uh, young men who may just not know what the right opportunity is. What's the right next fight? What's the right opportunity? How do I navigate this media they'll set up media for them I've seen that as well Um, you know they kind of do a lot for them beyond just contract negotiations with the UFC if that's all there is to it yeah there can be a role for that um, but it's not so robust it's all the stuff around it that you might begin to ask whether there's some value now a guy like Sean O'Malley or a guy like Dominic Cruz these are very enterprising guys right um in the case of dominic cruz he has carved out a commentary lane for himself he has thought about his career a lot he understands all the different stages of it he's navigated it pretty well even especially well, extremely well he was a, he's arguably the best 135 or ever he had to deal with tremendous injury like you know could he have gotten more money somewhere else it's certainly possible but um hard to say with any specificity uh Sean O'Malley, a guy who understands and did everything on his own on Twitch and understands new media and developed his own podcast and has media workarounds. Like, does he really need a whole lot of help? Probably not. Not at this stage. But a lot of guys, you would find that they need some guidance. They and it's. I, I had an agent for a while who kind of served in a similar role. Although in the end, we parted ways. He didn't really do a whole lot for me, right? Uh, the perfect example like he negotiated some deals for me they didn't go all that well the best deal I ever negotiated in my career was one that I had my attorney negotiate my my, who, my attorney is my best friend he married me, me and my wife um he was one of my college roommates he went on to law school and has done well for himself um I just use him um for, I have him look over all my contracts, I have him do the back and forth that everyone. I do a little bit of back and forth myself and then that's how we did our deals. Those are the best deals I've ever gotten, so I understand the impulse. However, I know some good managers and it seems like what they do is the broader suite of services. Also, one other thing to pay attention to is you know, just having a manager who has like a couple of clients. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but when you do see a manager that has a bunch of clients, they typically have a pretty good sense of what the market bears and what the UFC will or won't give. So if you're at X stage of your career, this is what fighters at this stage make. If you're at Y stage, this is what they make. If you're coming off of this many wins and this many losses and you're ranked this way, they seem to, because they get a look at the broader picture of what is being paid, um, they get a sense of like how pay can be apportioned. But what I would argue is that the pay is n- the, their, their ability to meaningfully increase your UFC fighter pay, I would say is is very narrow, but their capacity to provide uh, other services, not just, I, I know some, I know some managers that have done a lot for a couple of fighters, some champion, some former champions, in getting them um, situated with some huge pay opportunities outside of fighting, using their fighting career to leverage other forms of money. Um, So I hope that gives you some indication of what's going on. I think a lot of people center the conversation rightly, they center it rightly on, okay, but what are you doing for their pocketbook? Which is really the bottom line. Um, And again, as it relates to the UFC, perhaps I think there is something to be said about having minimal influence in that way. In the broader suite of services, I do think it's a little bit more of a complex question. For some fighters, they're not gonna need it. For others, it's gonna be hugely valuable. It really isn't a one-size-fits-all policy. Luke, it seems that Masvidal and Burns are being mentioned together for a matchup. Yes, I love that fight. I think that's bad news for Masvidal. With his new contract, three previous losses, and already being in his late 30s, do you agree that the road ahead is going to be brutal for him? Well, it depends on the road ahead. I mean, he's in a difficult situation, which is it, it's advantageous, but it's got a lot of costs. Well, here's the advantage. He's as pop, well, Okay, he's not quite as popular as he's ever been, but he certainly has elevated to a new stage of popularity within the course of his career. He is well-liked by a large portion of the fan base. He does still have drawing power, and he, and um, I think he gets pay-per-view points. So all of that is pretty significant. The only downside is that to make use of that popularity, he has to have a suitable dance partner, and in this particular case, most of the suitable dance partners are guys like Gilbert Burns, who I think is still has a lot of life left in him as a high-level fighter. I think... I think Masvidal is certainly not done, but he's much further. He's much closer to the end than Burns is, I would say. And so it's like, how do you get fights that maximize everything you've built with a suitable dance partner, but not have a dance partner that is so far ahead of you that you undercut everything else you built? That is the central tension that he's trying to negotiate. And it's not so easy. It's not so easy. Connor would be a good one. I think Burns is a winnable fight for Jorge, but I would favor Burns to win it. Um, Nate Diaz would be another good one, but I think that ship has sailed. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's tough. It's not easy. It's not easy to make money in this business. Luke, with the impending addition of Bo Nickel and the rise of Andre Muniz, will we see more wrestling grappling moving through the ranks of 185? Can this bring issues to top fighters like uh, Adesanya? and Pereira. Yeah, sure will. These reigns are not meant to last, man. They're not meant to last. I'm not in here in any way predicting that Muniz will get a title shot or Nickel will and by that time Izzy or Pereira will be champion. Who the hell knows? All these things work in cycles, man. All these things. Eventually, it sort of works itself out by nature, but if you get a grapple-heavy top kind of leadership of a division, then someone would you know, uh, great striking comes through like Izzy and kind of makes use of that. I mean, Izzy came up in an era where, you know, uh, obviously um, Anderson was there, but there were a lot of like, uh, I'd have to go back and look and verify this. It felt like there was a lot of like general types, wrestle boxer types, just guys who just could not match his level of striking and didn't have enough to really make the wrestling count. Now you've got guys coming up where you can really tell that they can make the wrestling count even if they can't match the striking. That changes the equation some a little bit. Uh, but all these things are cyclical, man. Guys will just change, not their game plans per se in, in the immediate sense, but over time they'll work on these kinds of things. New fighters get recruited. Dude, it is very, very... I, I keep saying this, man. You can say he's boring. Fine, it's up to you. It's your, it's your fandom. You get to own it. But doing what he's done, achieving what he has achieved is extremely difficult to do reins at the top are not built for longevity At all and so Will it be Nickel will it be Muniz will it be Izzy will it be somebody else I don't know but All of these things have turnover in This way and um, Guys like Nickel and Muniz I think are going to find that they're going to advance Pretty quickly What'd you think of Terrence McKinney calling out Patty Pimblett Shoot your shot right I think we discussed this last week for me here's the thing it's like dude is McKinney capable of beating Patty Pimblett? yes of course he is um, I would also say it works the other way and you could favor who you want but it's a winnable fight in either direction the reason I like the Drew Dober fight a little bit more personally your mileage may vary is that Dober to me is a lot more experienced um, for better or for worse he's a lot more experienced and which I, what I mean by that is the experience you take is great, but there's more miles on him. Not that he's washed or anything, but, you know, there's always trade-offs. Um, there we go. Um, but the bigger issue, I would say, is that McKinney, like, what's, what's a great thing about McKinney, right? You just go, he, he, I don't think he's been to a decision win or lose ever. Like, here's the thing. You match that guy up with Patty, you're going to get fireworks. I mean, you're going to get fireworks. And Patty may win, Patty may lose. But I'm at the point now with Patty, he got two kind of very soft landing fights. The Jordan-Levitt fight was an escalation to me. To me, I would like to see someone who's shown, who's been in there um, and shown some... It's not that like bikini's not durable, but I mean, somebody who's got a lot of rounds inside the UFC octagon, someone who's got the ability to beat him, and vice versa, he can be beat. I think Patty Pimblett can certainly beat him as well. But somebody who is not going to fight in a way that optimizes finishing in either direction. He's going to fight in a way where it might be a little bit more measured. It might go the distance. It might push P- Pimblett into new spaces that he hasn't been prior to that. So, listen, if they made the McKinney fight, I would hardly cry about it. That's a fight McKinney easily could, well, not easily, but, you know, very much could win that fight. But I think what I'm looking for in Pimblit's next opponent is not an escalation in the challenge, which, by itself, which McKinney I think solves for, he would be an escalation in terms of challenge. But an escalation in challenge with someone who is a little bit more of a veteran rock, right? Someone who's got just a lot of miles, or a lot of time I should say rather, spent in the octagon, seen a lot of positions, seen a lot of cards, seen a lot of different types of fighters, seen guys way better than him, seen guys way worse, just has a lot to offer in terms of that. And again, the particular way in which he can strike I think would match up, answer a lot of questions about Patty Pimblet, you know. So, rather than having a guy play speed chess with him a little bit, having a guy play more slow motion chess, I think that would tell us a little bit more about Patty's upside, and and would still solve the problems of, you know, a no name and um, and, you know, competitive in other direction, all kinds of stuff. In the upcoming Sterling versus Dillashaw fight, where do you see the biggest threat to each fighter coming from? Um, obviously, it would be way, way too simplistic to say it's striker versus grappler. It is so much more than that in both directions. But what I would say is, could Sterling win a win a fight over the course of five rounds, striking and sticking and moving? Probable. Probably unlikely. It's possible. It's possible. Unlikely. Um, Could he do it with something more of a mixed game? Like what he had with Jan, where there were long portions where he was sticking and moving. Other times he was looking for trips and single legs to create back exposure. Dude, at the Bantamweight division, who has better back attacks than Aljamain Sterling? Nobody. Nobody does. Why would you give that away? Um, I don't think Dillashaw has bad grappling by any stretch of the imagination, but why would you just give that away? That seems like a bad idea. You, you, again, you don't even have to wrestle a guy like Dillashaw to the mat. You just have to get him to create back exposure. So I think a similar-ish approach to the Yon fight would benefit Sterling with really almost any fighter, but certainly a guy like as well-rounded, well-rounded as Dillashaw. Uh, In the other case, I think with Dillashaw, you have to really narrowly constrain him. You cannot let a guy like Al You either have to initiate wrestling sequences against the fence, corner him, force him to strike with you. You have to have down blocking, like lights out. I just feel like if Al can move, right? If he can laterally move, if he can forward move, if he can escape in big motions because there's a lot of space behind or around him, he's going to be a hard guy to beat. He's going to be a very hard guy to beat. I think the... Central challenge is there. You got to constrain him. So I think body work. You got to slow him down. You have to slow his feet down. Leg kicking I think is going to be a huge component. Lower leg kicking, of course, to avoid um, getting your leg captured and then getting tripped out and then having issue. Um, all those kinds of things. I think you got to. Uh, for me, I think the leg kicking, body attacks from Dillashaw, constraining movement are going to be key. I think for Aljamain sitting behind the jab, distance management, mixed game. Trip attacks, creating back exposure, back control. Those are really the things I'd be looking for in either case. I think. I think just letting Aljamain roam is a surefire way to not capture the belt. You gotta. You have to constrain him. You have to make him slow down. You have to make him easier to find, and you have to make him slower. Luke, do you think UFC will try to run a stadium show in the U.S. I, eventually? I mean, well. They did one in North America by going to uh, Canada for Shields and GSP. They could use Allegiant Stadium for International Fight Week and look to move 40,000 tickets. I know their gates are very strong and not an issue, but I'm curious if they would try a stadium. Oh, Allegiant Stadium, that's the, uh, that's the Death Star, right? That's the uh, the Raider stadium out there in Las Vegas. Looks amazing from the outside, by the way. I should on Las Vegas. It's come a long way. It's got a lot more than it used to. I'll, I'll be fair to me. I still wouldn't want to live there, but it definitely is not the... Um, it's not quite the Dave & Buster's that it used to be. <laughs> it's like Dave & Buster's, you know, mixed with Cosmic Bowling now. It's got a little more to offer. I'm teasing. Everyone in Vegas, relax. Um, they could. The, the issue with T-Mobile is that partly I think there's contractual uh, obligations to uh, MGM. And the other part is they can just charge outrageous amounts and get whales to, um, even though it's not a casino, it still has a similar kind of effect Um, where you can just get outrageous, you know, front row seats to high rollers in Vegas, which you would think, well, you can do that in in the Allegiant Stadium as well, but probably not to the same extent. Um, But eventually, yes, they will. All right. Are we underestimating Charles Oliveira's star power? His last two events have done 400,000 versus Justin and 500,000 versus Dustin. Right now, he's currently tied with Izzy for biggest drawing card this year. Probably. Probably. And I'm told he's quite popular in Brazil, which makes sense. I don't think it's hardly some grand revelation, but worth also adding to that. That doesn't count for pay-per-view buys. Um, But for a guy who doesn't really speak English at all with the media, he has certainly captured the imagination. Now, um, those were big cards, in part because of him. I would say this one against Islam will tell us a little bit more because Islam has the Habib halo but is not really a known entity to casuals in the same kind of way as like a Gaethje or uh, certainly not a Dustin Poirier coming off the McGregor fights. Um, And it's going to be in Abu Dhabi, so it'll be, I think they're going to have it at a weird time. I don't know when it's actually scheduled for it. will be a little bit more of a test there. Um, I had said previously that, you know, none of those guys had proven to be pay-per-view draws. I think it's hard to tease out from the two cards you've mentioned exactly what kind of pull Oliveira has brought to them uh, because he does have two dance partners there that are a little bit more proven to the American market, which is the predominant pay-per-view market that we know. That's that there are other ones, but that's the biggest one by far. So what I would say is perhaps, perhaps, definitely, perhaps. Um, let's see how this one does here. Where it doesn't have you don't have another American in the main event. Could be at a weird time. The weird time. I heard it if they do it that way. Again, I have to verify when 281 is going to go off. But. Um, Let's not tease out exactly that he's got super underrated star power, but it is certainly something to pay attention to, and we'll get a little bit more clarification here with that 281 card. 280, 280 card, excuse me. Luke, have you seen Prey yet? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. If you have, what are your thoughts on it? I personally think it might be the second best behind the original third at worst. I'd put it at third. So, here's what I would say about it. It's great. It's great. You should watch it. It's on Hulu if you guys don't have it. And by the way, all that Mike Tyson drama, I mean, I feel bad for Mike if they really did him wrong. I I would like to see that Mike biopic, whatever it is. um, Pray. Here's what's good about it. I'm told that they initially thought of doing the entire thing in Comanche, and they decided against it. There is a lot of uh, Comanche language in the movie, which I thought was cool. Um, people have i think asked all the weird questions about this one that i don't really understand all that well um the main protagonist who is a woman in this fight or in this uh, movie and in all the fights uh you know uh question of how realistic it is i mean you're watching a movie about Comanches fighting an alien hunter like yeah they take some liberties with i think what is realistic and what is possible but she does a great job in bringing it to life that's really all i ask is do they sell it do they like? There's this. There, have you guys ever seen The Raid Two? It's a very different movie, obviously. But there's a, a woman in there, like uh, this, uh, who works for the bad guys. I'll put it that way. Where her two weapons are two hammers, and she just fucks people up with these hammers, bro. She is. She sells it. She sells it. It's utterly for that experience, utterly believable. And so all I ask is that they sell it. She does, she sells it. Like you can't take that away from her. She does a great job. She does a really great job. So so the main protagonist delivered. The whole Comanche things, and it takes place in the Great Plains, so like basically west of the Mississippi and, well, into, but before the Rockies. And uh, it takes place in the early part of the 18th century, I think like 1719 is when they said it. The cinematography is beautiful. Um, the Comanche life and the Comanche kind of backdrop and uh, their culture and their wayfinding and their warfighting, how it all fits in. I think it elevates the entire thing, personally. And I know folks have asked, like, how can they do this, like, you know, oh, more modern guys with guns and everything else. They couldn't kill the Predator, but a bunch of people with bows and arrows could. Well, number one, watch how they fight, is the first thing I'd say. Second of all, do they alter this Predator in a way, I don't want to give away spoilers, but do they alter the Predator in a way to make that fight a little bit more balanced? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I didn't ever. That didn't even fucking occur to me when I was watching this fight. I saw, or when I watched the 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 movie, when it afterwards, I saw people be like, "How could it be possible that a bunch of you know 18th century Comanches could fight this highly advanced alien predator?" Watch the fucking movie. <laughs> Watch the movie, and maybe even then, like there, it's not all that sellable too. I don't think it's an improper line of questioning altogether, but the devil is always in the details. How did they set it up in this movie? To accomplish that goal, and they've set it up quite nicely. I don't want to give it all away. I thought they did a a pretty fair job of figuring that all out. All things considered, the things I didn't like were um, the CGI is terrible. Not so much of the predator. I think I mean maybe some of him was a live action costume. I've not looked into it, but like there's a bear and there's a wolf and a rattlesnake and shit like that, where the CGI is. Abysmal. I mean, just and, oh, and a lion that just fucking is sucks. I didn't like that at all. And actually, that's the worst part of the movie. There must have been budget constraints, but you know they weren't. It was noticeably, noticeably bad. And I would say as much as the protagonist delivered. And by the way, she she works in a duo with her brother in the movie, and them together are fucking great. He he was awesome in the movie too. He doesn't get any shine, but I thought he did a great job in this movie. Um. Uh, so so they worked well together. But in the end, I did not find the story altogether as interesting and as neatly twisted as I did for Predators. So the original Predators, the one with Schwarzenegger, then there was Predator 2 where it was in L.A. People say they like that movie. That movie is fucking terrible. It sucked. And then Predators came out. And If you've not seen it, I won't spoil the whole thing, but the basic idea is rather than Predators coming to... Uh, Earth, they take all of the baddest people in the world, like this mercenary, this killer for the Yakuza, this, you know, hired gun for the Mexican cartels, and they dump them on their own alien planet and hunt them on their own turf. Uh, And it's, that movie, it was, uh, what's his name, Adrian Brody is in it, and you would think, like, this guy's an action hero? Again, did the protagonist deliver? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And there was other people in the cast that did a great job as well. That probably would be my number two. The alien versus predator ones, you got to put like on a separate track. I don't really feel like they're the same. So I would go predator, predators, prey, predator two, but the distance between like predators and prey is slight. The distance between prey and uh, predator two is like enormous. It's like. You couldn't even put it 4th. You should put it 100th. It doesn't even come close. All three of the... The original Predator is the best. It's like a horror movie, like a slasher flick, but it's also like an action movie with action stars, and it and it marries both at the same time. Like, did Predators do that? Yes. Did Prey do that? Yes. Made it all about the hunt, right? Did Predator 2 do that? Not even fucking close. That movie sucked. All right. How likely do you think it is we see Izzy utilize grappling in his fight with Alex? Uh, And if so, how active would he be in using it? I don't think it's very likely, although to change things up, he might. Um, Like, what's he going to do? Like a John Smith low single? Like, I don't think he's going to be doing that. So the question is what he might do that would come natural. Potential moments in the clinch. Uh, But the thing is this. It's like, dude, is Pereira going to really waste energy trying to take him down? I don't really think so. Now, maybe Izzy goes the other way and tries to clinch with him, but that could be perilous as well Um, because, you know, you're just going to leave openings there that you don't realize, like, oh, I'm going to go for a double, and I'm going to put my head on the outside, and then the elbow comes down and pops your eardrum, and that doesn't work. So then you try to go upright with him, and then um, you don't really get anything from it, and you're not going to hit, like, a John Smith low single. One thing that could be interesting to think about is with two guys who have some grappling ability, and again, I would agree that Izzy's offensive grappling, you saw a little bit of it in the Kelvin Gastelum fight, but we don't know a whole lot about it, Probably is not as useful as his defensive grappling and wrestling, which actually is quite good. It's very, very good. It's he has worked it out to a very high level at this point. Most of his peers can't do shit to him on that level. The one kind of X factor here to me is caught kicks. I wonder about that a little bit, right? I had someone tell me a while ago, uh, someone who trains that you know one of the things that the way they think about caught kicks is it's a it's a it's a sort of a shortcut for people who don't have good wrestling to get on top. And think about Aljamain Sterling, where he could catch a kick, same same as a single leg almost, right? Depending on where you lock it up, either behind the knee or whatever, and you can just kick out the post leg, they go to base, back exposure, right? Now, I don't know if Izzy's going to follow an Aljamain Sterling game plan, that seems highly unlikely, but the point I would try to make here is, in either direction, what happens if they catch the kick, then kick out the post leg, and then you cover the top? That's doable. And even if they stand up, you can punish them on the way up. With a good striker like those guys who will just let you get to your feet and then wait for the perfect moment to just steal on you. That seems like a possibility as well. So then what does that do to like the boxing game of Pereira, which he has a good one as well. I'm just saying I don't think of it so much as John Smith, low singles and high crotch, run the pipe and all this. I don't, I don't really, I don't know if I see that. But I do see them thinking about what are some realistic scenarios where we might find ourselves on the ground. And caught kicks, kicking out post legs, running someone backwards off a caught kick. Those seem very much in play for the both of them. And then what kind of games they want to put behind that, what kind of things they've developed, what tools or um, offensive sequences that they've put in motion to, to make that work. That to me seems like your winner-winner your chicken dinner there. What are they going to do with caught kicks? They may just let it go, you know, because you can still get bombed on if you caught it. Habib is the big one on this. You can't just hold on to a leg. Once you have the leg, you got to start off balancing them right away. Right away. Right away. That's the great equalizer is that balance. You saw, like, uh, for for example, the first round between Gamrot and Saryukian. Saryukian had his leg fully, I mean, treetop extended, and he still couldn't get taken down because he's a fucking animal. Um, You know, almost no one in UFC could do something like that. He did. But the point I'm trying to make here is, um, you have to off balance them right away. Habib was great about that. Once you get them on this, once you get them balancing on one, once you get them on one leg, make them balance. Move, move on it quick, side to side, in and out. Do whatever you got to do. Make them balance, because it makes their strikes a little less hard. It makes them focus their energy on that. Obviously, they could they could fall to their back. They could go to their base. There's back exposure. There's all kinds of stuff. It's the caught kicks. That's the one I'm really wondering about. You know. Uh, over under 70% Sean O'Malley will defend his title against Cheeto in a rematch wow that'd be crazy so like let's say maybe not imminently but could be could be a case where Sean beats Jan however likely you think that is it is at least possible and uh, Cheeto is I, I, I'm i picking him to beat Dominic um, could it happen after that Cheeto's sitting at 5 I think Dominic's sitting at like 8 um, probably not after that because you also have like Sanhigen in the mix and and there's Dillashaw. Obviously, he's going to fight Algermaine and who the hell knows what's going to happen with that. But I'll take the under. I'll take the under. But they, I think they are probably due for another collision at some point. All right. Look, could you go into detail as to why Jerron Ennis is so much better than his elite contemporaries? I can't describe it in too much depth, but to put it simply, the first time I saw him box was like watching Lomachenko box for the first time, in the sense that I'm fairly confident that at some point Boots will be pound for pound number one. Yeah, he looks like he is fucking dynamite. Uh, are there any compelling uh, future matchups for him? We'll see. He said he's got one coming soon. He would have an announcement, I think, for the end of the year. Y'all been watching Boots Ennis? And I know he's a Showtime guy and, and sort of like PBC aligned, although he's not a PBC guy. Um, I'm telling you, bro, you can say whatever you want. Oh, you're biased because, you know, you work for CBS and blah, blah. yeah, okay, fine, maybe I am. Go take the Pepsi challenge. Like, please, by all means, don't take my word for it. Don't. Do not. Go go get a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth opinion. Boots Ennis is... Um, Boy, they don't come around like him too often folks he is 25 years old he has i think he's um 27 and 0. i think he has 25 ko's something like that what makes him so good dude he can like one thing you have to think about is like when i watched josh silvera in pfl last weekend he's a very good up and coming fighter fell a little bit short against omari Akhmedov. it was only his like 10th pro fight what could you really expect and he performed ably for the most part. But, you know, he was he was ultimately, it was just too much for him at that stage of his development. But he might go on to be a champion. I don't mean to besmirch him. All I mean to say is when you see a guy like that at that level, it's less about what are they, like, oh, what are his identifiable strengths. That's uh, part of it. He overall makes pretty good decisions. He overall has pretty good offense. But you can tell he's still in development, right? He still has a long way to go, and he's still very young, obviously. But what you're trying to point out is, what can he do? Like, how many offensive tools does he have, right? How, many, how good is his takedown? How good is his passing? How good are his back attacks? What about his striking on the feet? What about boxing range? What about kickboxing range? And of course, there's going to be trade-offs in all directions. But like, what, a, a real clear sign of an underdeveloped fighter is not someone who's got a bunch of obvious weaknesses. It's just how sturdy are the strengths and to what extent, extent do they unite, that's what you're kind of looking for there. Like, how many things can they do? Like, just think about it. If you're a blue belt, you can do more things than a white belt, but you can't do nearly all the shit that a black belt can do. Conversely, if you're a purple belt, you can do a lot more than a white belt, but you're still going to be somewhat like, la- Like, at each level, it's not that your game gets different or better. You actually can do more things. Now, you might let go of some other things, too. You're like, oh, I, 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 when I was a blue belt, I did uh, scissor sweeps. I don't do those anymore as a brown belt. Yeah, whatever. It can All that can change but the point being is you can just do a lot more. And so, if you're asking what like what stands out to you about Jerron Ennis, he can fucking do everything. <laughs> like I put out the our Showtime put out a video of me talking to him because he did the 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 cast the 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 prelim cast with me for the Garcia fight, him and St- Stephen Fulton Jr, who's another fucking hammer. Dude, Boots can fight like in boxing, this is rare. I when I say equally well from either stance, equally well from either stance. He has knockout power. His accuracy is fucking insane. Um he can fight on the inside, he can fight on the outside. He has ridiculous cardio. He can be a boxer puncher or just a full-on boxer and stick and move. Um uh oh, and this is and this is really the biggest one. Dude, this guy is like they, they he hasn't even fought for a world title yet and you can watch him take everything away quickly like not even just between rounds in the middle of a round like his his recognition of patterns and his recognition of what he's up against and his his how about this his diagnostic ability is off the fucking charts his fight IQ is off the fucking charts his ability to diagnose what is in front of him and then accordingly go back to the toolbox because he has he can do so many different things and then just apply a solution to it is is extraordinary this is why it's hard your question is actually brilliant because it is actually hard to pin down like one like he doesn't have one kind of style he can just do anything he can just do anything and he can do anything because he's got a lot of ability and his diagnostic reading is i don't know if i've ever seen anything quite like it before like even errol spence has like very high fight iq and an extraordinary ability but he's still kind of got like a one style way of fighting you know um, not one style But he's got like a unique style I'll put it that way It involves a lot of different things But he's got one Dude, Boots is He is untethered It's, it's extraordinary watching him compete um, And yes, he hasn't been tested yet So we'll see some of this get refined Maybe we'll get a clearer sense of things as he moves up the food chain, which I think is inevitable. But you want to talk about somebody who can make diagnostic reads about what is in front of him and then already has the built-in ability to do something about it with whatever he needs to, short-range punches, this kind of feint, this footwork, this angle, this stance, whatever requires it, and then just apply it. It's, he's, he's a genius. He's a genius. You don't, you don't hear me talk this way about too many fighters in any sport. He's a fucking genius. Uh, We have a saying here in Australia, quote, surround yourself with goers and you too shall go. With that said, what importance do you think the credentials of a corner play in a fight? Is it more important to have specialists in each discipline or is it best to have people that know how to motivate you that might not have the same technical knowledge? It's probably a combination of the two. Sometimes the combination of the two can be the exact same person. Your coach can know exactly what critical ailment you might have in relation to how you're competing and also how to get the most out of you. The the, the Teddy Atlas uh, famously to. um, Timothy Bradley, we're firemen. We live in the we live in the fire, like that kind of a thing, right? You can really elevate a person in that way and also you can give uh more technical advice. I will tell you though, if you're asking me what is more important, in the right moment, neither is more important. Whatever you need most is the most important, right? Like if you if it's if it's what you need more is the pep rally. Then that is more important. If what you need more is technical knowledge, then what you need is 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 that's more important. My argument is, having watched fights for a long time, the thing I see that fo- fighters need more is te- usually, mo- yes, yeah, sometimes they need motivated, you know, pushes, absolutely, and those can be really huge and impactful. Most of the time, what they need is better technical and strategic insight. And, I'm, and I know this is you know going to ruffle some feathers, but um, The amount of coaches and the amount of, eh, maybe less so coaches, but the amount of teams that can work with a guy where they can A, make a diagnostic read, and B, meaningfully switch strategy in the middle of an MMA fight, either after the first or second round or whatever, you can count those teams on one hand. The ones who can do it really well. You can put city kickboxing either at or near the top of that list. Eugene Behrman and those guys, they are on that list for sure. There's not many after them. Not many after them. Uh, there's plenty who can game plan well. There's a bunch who can do that. Yes, very true. Very, very true. And by the way, I, I'm told that this is true across sports. That like in the NBA, in the NFL, less so in the NFL, which is built on a lot of this. But um, in a lot of sports, it's hard to make in-game adjustments where you're not just like nah, doing a little bit here, or a little bit there. Like really making an alteration that has an, a majorly impactful result. It's ex- one of the hardest things to do in sports. Um Price fighting would be no different. Uh, thoughts on the Gordon Ryan super fight. Yeah, man, what a mess. What a mess. Um, okay, here's what I would say. I thought Gordon would win. He had a slightly harder time. Actually, had a, he had a harder time than I thought he would. But the whole thing got marred at the last minute, right? Because if you guys don't know, and I don't know if it's Peña or Peña, I never know how they pronounce it in Portuguese. Obviously, if he had an Enya over, it, and he was Spanish-speaking, he'd be Peña, but I don't know. So if I'm mispronouncing his name, please forgive me. I thought it was Peña. I don't know. But Felipe Peña, of course, who beat Gordon, I think, around 2016, two different times, they finally had their long-awaited trilogy match for WNO, which is called Who's Number One. And... Uh, Pena or Pena has apparently he was very very close to Leandro Lowe who you guys might remember was murdered last week in what can only be described as a horrific horrific just a senseless act of violence and really a devastating one at that. Um and I guess I guess I'm I'm told that Pena was very close to him and I think wanted the match to be shorter the day of either to like I I, I, I heard competing things do you want to get back to Brazil for the funeral because I think the... I think the funeral ended up being Monday Um, and there was a quick turnaround or or whatever the case. He had requested a set of different rules and Gordon was like, no. And then after 30 minutes of like a, not a stalemate, but you know, another guy having a clear advantage, Pena motions to the officiating table that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to go on, but then agrees to. And then after about 40, less than 45 minutes, just kind of taps to cardio and then calls it a day. But like, was he actually really tired? It's hard to really know. Gordon looked to be better. I'll say that. I, I do think that Gordon showed that the guy who lost to, to Pena back in the day is not the guy here now. I thought he'd have a easier time doing it. I will say that. But, um... It was just a it's just a weird circumstance. And by the way, there was like the, a lot of controversy after the fact, because Flow Grappling is a... I, listen, I like Flow Grappling. I'm not like, shitting on them, but they do have a conflict of interest that's just real. They try to be a news organization on the one hand. On the other hand, they stage some of their own events, and they show others as well. And there's just an inherent conflict of interest between them, and they do their best to navigate it, I'm sure. I don't know if most folks in the sport mind it or not. They seem to be quite successful. But... There were some reports that they, or the, or the WNO organizers had um, pressured Pena to continue and that they had rejected these. Who the fuck knows what the reality is. But um, not the satisfying conclusion that people were hoping for. I think I can say that confidently. Um, not as definitive a result. But if you're asking who looked better over the course of time, Gordon looked better. But again... How would you feel if your best or if your very good friend was murdered, you know, a day before that? Would you have competed and done well? Some guys do, some guys don't. Who claims to be from multiple nationalities more than BC? Oh, excuse me. Who claims to be from multiple nationalities more? BC or Elizabeth Warren? <laughs> That's a good joke. That's a good joke. Probably BC though. That motherfucker claims half of Europe. It was good to see him, by the way. Who'd win in a wrestling match, Bo Nickel or Jordan Burroughs? You mean back in college? Maybe Bo Nickel. Uh, Plus, I think he's a lot bigger. Well, not much bigger. Um, But in freestyle, Burroughs would probably clean up. Well, skill skill for skill. I mean, I don't know how much the weight disparity might matter at this point. But you're asking, like, who had a better folk style career? Bo Nickel did, although Jordan's was very good. Very, very good. Who had a better freestyle career? It's not even it's not even even a remote comparison. Let's see, let's see. Um Do you think the UFC has any interest in adding an weight, atom weight excuse me, division to replace women's 145? I think eventually they will. Yes, I think they will. I think they're reluctant to add another division. I know it make, creates headaches for the matchmakers. And I think they would wait until there was actually enough women to sign. And it was valuable as a promotional entity. I think that is inevitable. Adam Weight Fighters have been competing in Japan for quite some time. You see them in Invicta, obviously, as well. It's It's on its way, but I think they're just kind of patiently watching and seeing what happens down the road. Uh, I've noticed in a lot of Paddy's fights, he jumps guard when being pressed against the cage. Is this? Oh, you know what? I wanted to get to it. I don't... Oh, there it is. Great. Perfect. Right on time. Someone was asking me about getting to Seth Fuller's 30-minute video defense of his judging in that controversial round three. If you guys know what I'm talking about, Seth Fuller is a judge out of Texas who made a YouTube video responding to what he considered to be unfair criticism of the job he had done at UFC 277. I think that's right, where Dantel Mays fought, um, forgive me the gentleman's first name, but it was, uh, excuse me, Hamdi Abdel Wahab. Uh, Abdel Wahab, I think was his name. First Egyptian in the UFC, by the way. Congrats to him. It's very nice. There was... There was a question over the round three, where he had given it to Mays, where I think most observers had given it to Wahab, who had three minutes of control time, had busy work on the ground, a couple of decent strikes on the feet, and then um, that was sort of the case for him. This was amazing, this video that came out. Now, let me be clear about something. When I say amazing, I'm not telling you I think everything he says in there is laudable, or I agree with, or I think is awesome, or fair, Or particularly a great point, there's a lot in that video I don't like. He went after Aaron Bronstetter, which I think is not great of him. And in fact, I think some of his criticisms were totally wrong. Um, There are some admissions about who he is, uh, like talking about what a fan he was of the Joe Rogan podcast, which I don't think is either relevant or helps his case one way or the other at all. I think he was trying to say, like, I'm a member of this community. I also think he misunderstood the argument about... Being a seasoned judge, he's a black belt in jujitsu, which is which is highly commendable, of course. And he's been around the community; he has trained with, and he's cornered fighters and all kinds of stuff. He has clearly been involved in the MMA community for a very long time. But in terms of when I think of seasoned judges, I don't think of guys necessarily who only judge at the regional level or have some level at the next at the at the UFC or high level Bellator or whatever. Um, I, I, my point being is. Just because you have a lot of experience in the community and some very valuable judging experience, that's not the same as having a consistent record of judging elite uh, MMA. I think they're actually very different, and I don't think it's the same task. And I think you have to, he's right when he says you have to treat all these guys equally before the rules that the laws set out. That's true. Everyone is equal before them, and you have to apply them equally. But the degree of specificity and your keen understanding and eyesight and all the factors that go into the most careful consideration yeah you you that has to be developed over time you have to work your way up to that and of course these these judges are at the mercy of how often big fights come to their town and and what the local commission does in terms of giving them assignments like a lot of it is out of their hands so I don't think he's an inexperienced judge. I would not say that, but is he seasoned in terms... Let's pull up his record here on MMA Decisions. All right? so let's go to MMA Decisions. You guys ever go there? I'm sure many of you do. They do a good job of cataloging a lot of this stuff. Let's look up judges. Let's go to, uh, let's see, Seth Fuller. Let's see what we get from him. All right, so he has judged in terms of everything they've recorded for Bellator and UFC... He's judged four UFC fights ever. They were all from UFC 277. Sorry, that's not a seasoned judge. Not for this level. That doesn't mean he's an inexperienced judge. Doesn't mean he's a bad judge. Doesn't mean he's stupid. Doesn't mean have anything to do with that scorecard either. But when I think of seasoned judges, however much this process is taken out of his hands, seasoned means you've got a lot of time watching high-level and judging high-level Bellator, judging high-level UFC, and not just undercard fights, but, you know, mid-card up, uh, up, the, up, the, up the ladder. You know, this idea, like, you, because you've been involved in MMA, like, you're just as good as someone who's been judging fights for five years at a high level. You, you, you can do just the same kind of job as them as you uh, for Volkanovski versus Holloway 3, as, as people who have been judging UFC fights for far longer and have a demonstrated record of success at it. Yeah, sorry, don't buy it. Don't buy that at all. Um, so there's a lot in that video I don't agree with. However, however... The fact that he made it is extremely important, and he probably imperiled his ability to get assignments going forward. You may never see him again on either a UFC show or any other one. The commissions have basically decided for, you should ask them what the fucking purpose of this is, that they don't want their judges really speaking out in any kind of public way. Um, I have had judges hit up uh, me privately off the record. I've had referees hit me up privately off the record and been very forthcoming with this and in every case lamented the inability to talk about these things publicly, but in fealty to the commission requirements, they don't. You should understand something. Commissions not allowing judges or referees to speak to the public doesn't make judging better. And it doesn't make refereeing better. All it does is reduce transparency. And by the way, remember these are public organizations, and a measure of public accountability, I think, is owed, and transparency, I think, is owed. You are living off of tax dollars and whatever as the state you can collect from uh, shows revenue from shows, right? But predominantly, these are these are funded off the backs of Texas. uh, In this case, Texas taxpayers. You owe them. You owe them. You owe them not everything, but you owe them a degree of transparency. My whole argument is you should not ban judges or referees from speaking to the public. You should have a coordinated process where it is somewhat limited, but there is a degree of accountability or transparency given. We need to know who these judges are. We need to know how they think. And when I say we need to know how they think, I'm not telling you we have to accept all their arguments. You may hear things that you don't like. You may hear things you don't agree with. Hello, I heard a bunch of that in his video. But what I very much commend him for is at least, I would say bucking the truth, he really imperiled his ability to get another assignment in order to articulate, now he keeps saying it wasn't just about his ego and it was more about the larger issue. And he's right, it is about the larger issue. Although it did appear that his ego had been hurt by this. In fact, his first assignment, he gets criticized and he goes right to making a YouTube video where he put the clap back in the title. It very much hurt his ego, which I can understand. Like who the hell wants to be slandered you know on a big ass pay-per-view like that but um neither here nor there. He is right that these things need to be discussed more. He was 100% right that um f- there's a big gap in between in terms of what the general public and even UFC commentators understand and what he understands in terms of how uh fights are judged and scored and he does have the certification. He has been to the training and again, He's not an inexperienced judge. I don't mean to suggest that at all, or I'm not even saying he's a bad judge. In fact, the way he makes his case, you can understand why he gave round three to Mays in the way that he did. I think what's so impressive and important about it is that he was willing to put a face and a name and an argument to why he made the decisions that he did. We cannot accurately understand the scale of the problem or the very nature of the problem in judging if we never, ever hear from the judges. You can't make a clear determination about what they're doing. If there's too much distance, there's too much darkness involved. And he was trying to illuminate that. Yo, the Texas Commission can do whatever they want, but they're fucking losers for not allowing judges like this to have their say. And if they don't give him another assignment, not because they disagree with what his judging call is, but because they didn't like the bad press that him coming out with this may have fomented, then fuck them, dude. Then fuck them. This is it is better for MMA that he did what he did. Judges have a voice, not one that you have to agree with, but they have a contribution to make to the larger public consciousness about this and the public understanding, simply eliminating them from the conversation. Who the fuck does that help? You know who it helps? It helps the commissions not get criticized. So that's why they do it. It's just about protecting their own ranks and circling their own wagons. It's not about illumination. It's not about public accountability. It's not about transparency. It's about none of those things. It's about protecting their image so that the state doesn't come you know, crashing down on them for malfeasance or you know, incompetency or whatever. That's all it's about. So I really appreciate that he made this video, even if I completely disagree with a lot of things he had to say. And there's one more thing I might say about this, which is I encourage you to watch it if you haven't seen it. The thing that really stands out to me about all of this is um, if you accept the way he judges the fight as a reasonable way to do it, and by the way, other judges might disagree, but because we don't hear from them, we have to kind of take his word as semi-gospel. I hate the way the fights are judged now. I hate it. I hate the way that grappling has become near pointless don't like it at all don't agree with it don't think it's the correct way to do it whatsoever and it almost becomes arithmetic the way he was kind of weighing well he had these accumulative punches which don't weigh as much as immediate impact which was fine the way he was organizing it was correct um but then he's like well he i was kind of leaning this way this far and then it changed this way later it was almost like he was like stacking rings and like in this almost well, he got this part and then got this part, so that kind of counts in this way. And he was—it's not like you don't want to weigh individual parts and their relevance. Yes, of course you do. But that doesn't, I mean, again, I don't have the data to prove this, but you guys know that doesn't seem to me like a better system than sort of taking a broader picture and asking, like, who really was the one that decided this outcome and the complexion of the fight and who did the better damage and, and, and then sort of going on down from there, taking a broader view of it. Hard for me to believe this is a better way to judge a fight. I don't really love the way that, if this is the correct way to do it, and I suspect that it is, um, I hate it. <laughs> I i think it's a terrible way to judge a fight. I think it makes grappling, um, it minimizes the role in an overcorrection to the nth degree, I find that to be a disaster personally. So, um, so this is not about endorsing his views. This is about endorsing the effort to air his views, and I support that times a thousand. And again, he did have some things that I thought were correct to say, like him going through the rules and being like, "Listen, I don't have to count this until unless if this is not unless this is equal, I don't have to worry about all this other stuff." And he was going through the criteria, like, "Please go watch it for yourself." Like, there's a lot in there that is is worth your time, whether you agree, whether you disagree. The things I found off putting were like the way in which he tries to sort of make it not about his uh, personal pride being hurt, when quite obviously that was the motivating factor. Even if he is right that these larger issues need to be aired. I didn't like the fact that he, that he tried to make the argument he was a seasoned judge. He, not. For UFC fights, you're not a seasoned judge. Not even fucking close. Not even fucking close. Doesn't mean you're a bad judge, but you're not a seasoned judge. Nope, not at all. Not at all. Uh, and then what I would say lastly is, um, you know, the way in which fights are adjudicated under this rubric, I think is mechanical to the point of wrong. Um, I hate it, I hate it. It might be the correct way to do it, it might be the way you should do it in order to understand what the judges might come up with, but I fucking hate it. I think it's a massive overcorrection of grappling and not the right call at all, um, among other problems with the video. But the fact that he aired it and the fact that he took the time, there there is some merit to what he said and it is worth your time. Go see it. All right, with that out of the way, Let's see what you guys have for any uh, donations, which, of course, you're under no obligation to do it. But if you did it, I'll take a look at them now. Let's see. All right, Jesus, there's a few of these. Okay, Um, does a ranked UFC pound-for-pound fighter equal a future Hall of Famer? Not necessarily in either direction. not necessarily no how many pay-per-view buys can Cyborg versus Kayla do I don't think there's a ton of market demand for it if I can just be candid with you at this point um that doesn't mean I don't think Kayla can be in big pay-per-view fights I actually think she could I don't think the PFL is the place for her if that's what she wants and uh which I'm not trying to like like dump on the organization I'm just trying to look at the market where it's at um I think she can be in big fights. I think she can be a big pay-per-view draw. I don't really detect a lot of fan interest in this one, and that really is the dividing line. Uh, what do you think? Do you think Roberto Soldich really cares about fighting in multiple forms of martial arts, or did one just give him the most money? They probably gave him more money and then a contract that was somewhat more appealing. So it's neither A nor B. it's It's the apportionment of it. Thank you for everything. Thank you. When is the Cabal Bell interview going to be released? I think when I'm on vacation. I think when I'm on vacation. someone says i strongly disagree any martial arts are made to favor the smaller weaker person martial arts aid the trained person versus the untrained person right but in that sense if you have a smaller untrained person can they do more against a bigger person Then the answer is yes you're right it doesn't magically transform the laws of physics to make smaller people no longer have to uh feel the consequence of a lack of size and by the way you can be by the way even that doesn't necessarily do it right because you can be very small but very well trained if there's a 400 pound bouncer in front of you, you're gonna get your fucking ass kicked in all likelihood. Like the, you know, there's limits to all of this. The question is, what does it do to scale your ability? And it does a lot. Uh, someone says, "Thank you for all the content, Luke. I've been following you and Brian consistently since MK Day One. Thank you. Glad to see all the praise you received lately to your work. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, what you're referring to specifically, but thank you." Is the Muay Thai clinch game stand-up wrestling? Well, because strikes are involved, it's not wrestling in that sense. But I would argue that, uh, and again, I have a limited understanding of it, but from what I understand of it, uh, having played with it a little bit, it's a lot of wrestling. It's a lot of wrestling. Head position and collar tie position and off-balancing and turning and pulling. Like There's a lot of it involved. There's just more to it than just that, but yes. Why are Bellator events in South Dakota over the Twin Cities? I don't fucking. <laughs> There's a lot about Bellator I don't really understand. Can you break down Sandhagen versus Jan to give us an idea of how O'Malley could beat him? I'm going to guess he's going to have to feint his way into openings. right? You can't just beat him with volume in the striking department. Not, not over the course of 25 minutes. Uh, I think O'Malley has a hard punch. He's a hard hitter. And I think the key would be, there it is, to create openings and then, um, through feinting, either draw, draw him to you positionally, transfer defense, and then let the harder strikes find the target. Uh, but short of that, I don't... Uh, oh, excuse me. So what am I saying? Sandhagen. Wrong one. Can you break down Sandhagen versus Jan to give us an idea of how O'Malley could beat him? Oh, I'd have to go back and look at Sandhagen. I don't really remember the fight. In in case of O'Malley... Um, that would be my best guess, is it would have to be heavy fainting, heavy pressure, um, consistent body work, and then drawing reactions, drawing positional commitment, that kind of thing. I was watching Jake Shields versus Damian Maya yesterday. I forgot how great of a grappling match it was and how good Jake Shields was in his prom. He was fucking great. Do you think his career is so overlooked and forgotten about? Yeah, I've told uh, Jake this to his face, and I and I stand by it. He has the, um, he's one of the most underrated fighters of all time, of all time. Now, you may like his tweets and his views, and you may not. Um, that is a separate consideration about what did he accomplish in his career, and is there a sufficient amount of acclaim for it? I would argue no. No, dude. Jake Shields had a fucking great career beating Dan Henderson the way he did. Um was, I mean, the improbable of all improbabilities. And you should see the way the UFC, uh, it's funny, the UFC's hype package for Shields before he fought GSP was amazing. Like, they put up, they had Shields sitting in this corner and, like, all these trophies and medals and newspaper articles about what a demon and threat he was. And it really was true, man. This guy had beaten so many good fighters. And, you know, there was obviously limits to his game like there is for anyone. His striking never turned out to be, you know, Uh, The famous term Bangkok ready I I wouldn't say it was ever that But um, his overall MMA acumen was high And his grappling was next level dude And he never ever ever got credit For a lot of the wins that he got Dude he was a handful He was a fucking handful And of course he had some bad losses But like If you look at the Ellenberger loss, like his dad, Jake Shields' dad had died right before that fight. I think days before that, and he went through with it. You know, again, some people can have a terrible event like that, and it can elevate them. And a lot of people, it doesn't. It didn't in that case, which is understandable. So, um, you know, no one's resume is blemish-free, and no one's game is perfect. And so there's plenty of criticisms you can make. But if you were talking about one of the best fighters um, who the legacy doesn't match what I think the acclaim should be, I would put Jake Shields at probably the very top of that list. He is one of the very best fighters I've ever covered, and I don't think he gets the proper credit for it. Any thoughts on a seat at the table petition? Oh, this is for the fighters to get a seat uh, for rulemaking in front of the ABC. Yeah, I fully, fully support it in every possible way. Um, Someone uh, with a very nice donation here says, Keep rocking, Lucas. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it uh luke two years ago i asked you the following who would win in a no time limit bjj match gordon ryan or prime andre galvan you sided with andre curse if you stand by this today no i don't think i would i think i'd pick i think i'd pick gordon at this point yeah it's a good question i'm glad you asked it what about chandler versus islam islam's a blanket but mike's never been subbed and is strong and muscled in my opinion his game negates islam's strengths no I'm not going to say that Chandler has a weakness from the back, but Eddie Alvarez held it for a long time. Um, Lots of fighters have found their way there. I think Islam would find his way to the back and potentially win that way. Um, It's competitive, certainly winnable in either direction, but I think Islam's more well-rounded grappling ability, and particularly with attacks from the back, would be something to pay attention to. What tools do you use to keep up with MMA news? Um, Twitter curation is one. Um, social media curation in general. I keep a list of sites I go to. I rely on my producers. I rely on a lot on what you guys send me. Again, News at gmail.com. Um, I don't know that I do a very great job of it. I do the best job that I can. But yeah, that's what I would say. Those are typically social media and then individual curation of news sites. That's really about it. Is illegal streaming good for UFC? Not really. Uh, without illegal streams, I'd lose interest and not be a fan, not consume ESPN Plus, YouTube co- content, not a, not buy two big pay per views a year, or go to live events, etc. Imagine many fans like me, right? So here's the issue: the issue is um, is illegal streaming a a uh, a net bad for? Is piracy a net loss for? Um, or you know entities like uh, sports organizations in this case UFC I would say yes however I think you are an interesting and I think noteworthy and important carve out it's not like piracy we're not saying piracy is good what we are saying is like anything in life it can be a complex and in some ways almost contradictory thing on the one hand it can rob um, you know these these IP rights holders of very valuable money that they otherwise would not get Um, and that can be really devastating in certain cases. On the other hand, might there be a case where someone is a hardcore fan who doesn't have the (coughs) financial capability to keep up with it otherwise, but this keeps his fandom intact and does actually lend out itself to more, um, more purchases than they otherwise would get if they were entirely shut out? And the answer might be yes. Here's what you have to realize. In the case of streaming you are also the least important person to them. There was this brilliant essay that came out, did you guys see this? Uh, is old music eating new music? And one thing they found with streaming, and this is more true in music than it is true in, in television, but there, it's a similar dynamic, namely, it used to be the case that the hardcore fan, let's, let's keep it to music for a second, the teenager who was spending all their allowance money on, this is back in my generation, CDs or magazines or the latest album, like, you know, where sales were really important. Sales are not so much important anymore. Now it's more streaming numbers or whatever. But the the, the whole point was they centered their marketing and their point of sales to the people who were the most engaged on the product. Now it's the reverse. Because if you're just paying, especially if there's sharing going on in a family account, if you're just paying one monthly fee and you're using everything that doesn't get you as much value as the person who is just on the edge of interest but kind of agrees to it and then gets their money in fact that's the inversion while the most engaged customer used to be the most important one it has flipped and so now the least engaged but still willing to pay customer that's the one they want the most that's the one they've turned it um, they've they've inverted who they're looking for so like with you, it's not like they don't want you to stream. They probably do. They don't want to give away piracy, but what they're more interested in is the person who is like, eh, I'm kind of on the bubble. How many of those people can they convert? Because it's a much larger um, uh, pool, essentially, that they could benefit from. Whereas they don't get, it. there's no marginal ve- utility to having someone who just goes through everything. They want the person at the other end, and so I think streaming is a lot like that now as well. Am I the only one who hates no time limit BJJ matches? To me, after 20 minutes, the match becomes sloppy due to fatigue. I have issues with ADCC scoring as well, so not saying that's the answer. What scoring type do you prefer? I prefer points. <laughs> I've said this a million times. People think no gi, uh, no time limit, or you know, long time limit that that's like that's the best jujitsu. Maybe that's the best jujitsu for people who are. I'm not saying this insultingly. People who are like casually interested in no gi, like MMA fans, so you can kind of get to watch. Um, jujitsu but if you actually care about like good jujitsu i don't think that's the best jujitsu i really don't or i mean it used to be a problem where you didn't get a level competitors doing it now you do so that's less the problem but i just don't think it's very interesting i think the way in which like dude if you get giving up your back is a fucking problem um because you lose points not just to say whatever consequences might come from the position yeah i love that i love them having to fight their way out of that absolutely I, I, you know, I, I understand that there's a learning curve to all this stuff, and so I get it if it's not as readily accessible to the wider market. I like points. I think points is the best, and of course, there's a million problems with that style too, and advantages, and oh, are the judges fair? Yeah, of course, a million problems, a million problems. But um, I still prefer that. I don't, I don't really get a satisfying, like, oh, we have overtime rules, and you know, it starts on someone's back, and I know, I know that casual fans like that more. I don't. I don't find that nearly as interesting. Why is WB not scrapping the flash after Ezra Miller? Yeah, I haven't followed the story too closely, but I saw some headlines. Apparently my man has got some problems. Have you seen everything everywhere all at once? I've seen 15 minutes of it and I haven't come back. I've heard it's amazing. I saw the first 15 minutes when the girl brings her girlfriend home to meet the parents and that's it. Would you consider working with Jordan Breen again? Of course. Thoughts on Bigfoot September fight. I mean, it's just a crime that it's happening. Just a crime. Um, it's going to be devastating for him. the The it's already going to be it's already going to be bad for him in the next stage of his life. And I can only imagine how much worse this is going to make it. Uh, what about Rockhold Costa? Love that fight. F- very much a crossroads fight. Uh, we did a big breakdown of it on uh, pregame preview, which is going to be out on Sunday. So check that out. Uh, Someone's asking about a dude I've never heard of. It's a steak and eggs diet. Dude, all of these fucking diets, they all do the same thing. They all do the same thing. Keto, paleo, whatever the fuck you want. They all do the same thing. Time-restricted eating, whatever. All they do (laughs) is shorten either the window you can eat or the kinds of amounts you can eat or the certain um, uh, types of food you can eat in such a way as to reduce calories. That's it. They all work the same. They have different mechanisms of finding the same answer, but they all work the same. If someone's coming to you being like, I don't know what this guy's thing is, but you know, to me, like when someone's like a carnivore diet, it's like... I, I, I don't really understand what the problem is with having a well-balanced diet, and as someone who's had digestive problems, like real digestive problems, or I've had to go to the fucking hospital for them, that seems like relatively crazy to me. Um, so I can't speak to this gentleman's particular... Um, world view but what I would humbly ask you to consider is that all of these diets work the same basically find which one works best for you and enjoy uh, as someone who's also named Luke what have you heard more throughout your life Luke I am your father or cool hand Luke motherfucker I used to, I, I was named Luke as a kid in the 80s you know how many fucking times I heard Luke I am your father I heard that shit up until I was like in my 20s bro uh someone says thanks for answering thanks for years of answering my stupid questions none of them are stupid Patty versus Jim Miller that's a terrible fight for Patty also Finland is great at javelin they usually uh f- oh, finish first that's funny although I you know I don't know if Jim Miller's terrible for Patty but that's a tough one let's see if there's anything else How many Henry Cejudo's weighing in at 125 pounds would it take to beat a fully healthy Francis? Probably three. Probably three of them. All right. Let's quickly go back to rapid fire, and then we shall call it a day. Call it a day. God damn it. Very quickly. All right. Let's go to the very bottom of this bitch. Have you seen the Amazon show The Boys? Yes. What are your thoughts? My wife and I fucking love it. Love it. Uh, Let's do a couple more. (laughs) If you had to pick between the musical stylings of Eminem and Jason Mraz, which would you say is the least problematic for the eardrum? Uh, I'd go Eminem. I'd like him a little bit more. Although he's washed, which his fans don't want to admit. But it's very quite obviously true. Uh, let's see. A question about underwater breathing. I'm the wrong guy. It's a shame BC doesn't enjoy superhero movies because if he enjoyed his time watching Love and Thunder, the rest of the MCU would be peak cinema for him. <laughs> true. Very true. I've tried. I've tried. Uh, let's see. Um, let's do one more what do I think about the results of the Alex Jones trial yeah I'll just say it one more time I don't have even a slight degree of sympathy for him and if the by the way there are two more of these I think there's one more in Texas and then another one in Connecticut so he is far from done Um, they're probably going to take him for everything he's worth and I wouldn't shed a single tear not even a little bit All right, that is it for me Diggity Donks, I appreciate you tuning in. Thank you so much. Again, we are off next week, but I'm going to have some content throughout the week that we're going to sprinkle in while I'm gone and uh, to keep this thing kind of alive and moving. So if you go want to reach me, LukeTapasNews at gmail.com. I appreciate it. I'm out of here. And um, until next time, stay frosty.